Before we start this episode, I would like to mention the Masters of Motion Jobs Network. If you're looking for a new job or trying to hire a new recruit, I highly recommend checking out our Jobs Network. With over 30 jobs a month from some of Australia's and New Zealand's best studios. Find out more at mastersofmotion.com.au I'd also like to thank Digistore and MSI Computers for supporting Masters of Motion and helping make this episode possible. Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with the outstanding visual effects supervisor, Brendan Seals. Brendan started in commercial design and VFX working at Boogie Monster in Western Australia. Through passionately working on the indie horror feature film, Sororal, he broadened his skills and then landed a role at Luma Pictures in Melbourne. He then progressed his career at Luma, working in 3D, lighting, sequence supervision and compositing before becoming a VFX supervisor. His work can be seen in Marvel films and other Hollywood blockbusters, including Thor, The Dark World, Deadpool, Captain America, Civil War, Alien Covenant, Spider-Man, Far From Home, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, and Godzilla vs. Kong. He's an actor award-winning supervisor and he's widely respected within the industry. In today's episode, we'll be reviewing three projects. I highly recommend that you go to the Masters of Motion website and check out the three projects. It will make your listening experience so much richer. I've been looking forward to this one. Let's get into it. Thanks, Brendan, for coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. No worries at all. Happy to be here. Would you like a cup of tea or coffee before we get started? Or a wine or beer? <laughs> I probably would take a beer, actually. You want one? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's, it's pretty lowbrow. That's fine. I'm from Perth, Matt. Perth, low Perth. It, it, it definitely is. I can tell you that. <laughs> Thank you. All right, let's get into it. Are you ready for your first question? Yeah, sure. What does it take to land a job at a place like Luma and thrive? You can have someone come straight out of any institution and have a very junior reel, but if they can demonstrate an application of ideas that they've turned into something of their own, they've, been, they've shown creativity, that goes a long way than necessarily just mastering a piece of software and, and turning that into a product. So... I'm always keen to see how they've applied their own ideas into their craft. And say in like a 3D modeler, what are you looking for in their work? Attention to detail in modeling, because attention to detail shows that they really understand not just primary detail, but secondary and tertiary detail. 
obviously demonstrating the ability to match things in real life. What about showing your techniques or your ability to be creative? If you can show how you've mastered the rules and then you can bend them a little bit, try something stylized, which means you have a really good understanding primarily of base forms. That's really interesting to see. What about lighting, say photorealistic? For photorealistic lighting, it's knowing that you understand the core principles. So um, your understanding of matching gray balls and chrome balls, understanding um, size of lights, distance of lights, um, density of shadows, color of shadows, things like that. Everything that we study when we're, we're doing CG integration. What are the good principles of making a showreel? Keeping it short, only your best work. That's a real hard one because it's, it's a very tempting thing to make a long drawn out showreel. Yeah. But you've got to be brutal and harsh on yourself. And sometimes that in, does involve looking out to other people to tell you what you should cut from your reel. I've always got this good example of a reel that I looked at where it was a asset reel, modeling and texturing. And I only had one piece in the reel and it was a fly through of the recreation of Bilbo Baggins' Hobbiton home. And it was just one shot. And the camera flew through the interior and showed just the depth of models and textures that he'd done. And that was the show reel. That was all he did. But the attention to detail and how well it was put together, the presentation of it was so well done that that caught my eye over, let's say, a three-minute reel of 50 different assets put together. Any other particular things that they should focus on? Should demonstrate uh, enough variety to show that you're versatile, but not too much that it doesn't show that you're excellent at those things. So I think simplicity in the reels is most important so that you focus on just a few examples that you do extraordinarily well. Do you reckon it's the maximum length? We usually say no more than two minutes. I always tell people that it should be around one minute and two minutes is probably too boring. Most people reviewing reels are captivated in the first 20 seconds. And if you haven't been captivated in that, you might not even watch the rest of the reel. How do you sort of build a reel that shows what you can do if, you know, like a lot of people have worked on that shot? A breakdown reel is always, for me, going to get my eye over just a finished shots reel. Yeah. Um, that's easier said than done because sometimes you're not allowed access to the raw materials to do a breakdown reel. But there's ways to at least talk about it in the supporting text at the bottom of the reel. Yep. I always actually pause on that and read exactly what's done. Um, some other clever techniques that I, I've seen recently is pausing on a comp and doing your own colored rotoed overlay to highlight the specific things that you've done. So you're actually doing a post process on top of the showreel and that gives the, the reviewer a sense of, oh, that element is exactly what you did. And if you were to go back and look at your showreels like before you started at Luma, did you make any mistakes that you think that you wouldn't do now? Yeah, absolutely. My superiors probably wouldn't have hired me necessarily alone on just my showreel. Okay. I definitely had things that dragged on too long, too many clips in there. <laughs> I, I mean, I was, um, I did put the best stuff at the start. Yeah. Um, I focused too much, you know, even in the making of the showreel on things like sound and, 
and the editing of it. And I think those are things that just slow you down and they're even a way of you avoiding releasing the reel. You're like, oh, I just need it to be perfect. <laughs> I need it to be I need it to, to be on cue with the sound. I need to do this. And I think it's, a, it's almost an, another way of um, that tortured artistic soul of procrastination. Just only your best work. Get it done. Get it out there. Yeah. Cool. That's good to hear. What movies, films, books inspired you when you were growing up? I'm going to have to go straight to the cliche and it was Star Wars. But I can claim that because my parents actually went on one of their first dates to see The Empire Strikes Back. So, it was kind of like, I guess, genetically in me from the start. I saw the originals when I was seven. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't understand what visual effects are. You just know that it's just this magical experience where you're transported to you know this faraway place and I was just enraptured by that from that age and uh, I've always wanted to be in movies and growing up I'd make little short films I'd do little lightsaber battles you know all the cliche stuff I never really thought it was that I wanted to be in visual effects I just wanted to be in movie making I wanted to be part of the movie magic it's a shame it wasn't spider-man because then you could have like yeah, worked yeah. on your dream Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've worked on so many comic book movies and and not worked on Star Wars (laughs) my whole career. So, yeah. Yeah, Well, it's funny. They're making so much Star Wars stuff now. There's still a chance that you're going to get to do it at some stage. I I get asked it all the time because, you know, most people who know me know I'm a massive Star Wars fan. And I've done a good job of avoiding it because I I still love the spectacle of going to the cinema and I, I still am able to sit there and not look at it for the visual effects. And what did you think of the Mandalorian with the... Stagecraft. All of that is really exciting technology. And I love that it's that bridging of the gap between production and post. Really exciting space. And I can only see that bleeding into more and more productions, not just obviously Star Wars. Yeah, well, uh, here they're building a lot of different places to do it around Australia. Which yeah, is absolutely. Pretty exciting. And... When did you discover 3D compositing, visual effects, and how did you become so passionate about it? I was playing around with lightsaber battles when I was, you know, in my teens. Back then when it was doing lightsabers, it was painting the lightsabers frame by frame in Photoshop and then exporting it out to Premiere and then hitting play. So, it was a very different uh, world of doing indie visual effects, but... We just make little short films, little Matrix Star Wars films. Cool. And that obviously needed visual effects done. So the natural step was to teach myself After Effects, Premiere, and that was the starting point. And then I went to uni, Curtin University, and actually did a, a design degree. And it wasn't actually focused on 3D at all. Yeah. I was just interested in the arts and, and design, and that was always one of my passions. But it was about halfway through that I could take electives in filmmaking and, and 3D. All right. So, I want to go back and now go through your career. So, we'll start off at Boogie Nights. It's not called Boogie Nights, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, that's funny. What was it like for you working at Boogie Monster? And what did you learn in that period? I have such great memories of my time at Boogie Monster because I was obviously very impressionable and you know I was just brand new. It was my first paid gig in the industry but what made it special was that Steve was a mentor by trade 
He was an Autodesk certified trainer for the Australasia Pacific region. So he was not just an artist or or a manager, but he was someone who innately is a trainer and a mentor. So I was very lucky that I had that from the start of my time at Boogie Monster. And did working in commercials help you in your film work later on? Absolutely. And what was it that you know that you learned that sort of helped you later on? Often the best artists at Luma are the ones who've started in commercials because commercials give you that platform for speed and quality. Yep. And oftentimes in the commercial world, it's an unrealistic paradigm because they want the world and it's breakneck pace. But there's an ingenuity that comes about in the commercial world. It's often with generalists and it's a go-getter, get-it-done type attitude because at the end of the day, in a small TV commercial studio, every problem is your problem. Yeah. And so, you, you get very creative with cutting corners, learning what is bang for buck, placing your time on the things that are going to have the most impact with the time that you have. So, you'd recommend for people to do commercials prior to going into film? I think it's a great starting point for anyone in their career because it's the pursuit for quality in a ridiculous amount of time and you don't always get there. And I think there's almost a humility that comes with that in that you know that you did the best you could with, let's say, four weeks and you walk away and you're like, that's done. Yeah. What can I do better next time? And it's interesting because that short lifespan, it's a lot shorter than the film lifespan. So, you, you, you go through a lot more challenges quicker and so, you come out in what may be two years with a lot more under your belt than you would if you'd started in a film. And I would say that I would, like, in my career, do 30 projects a year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's not including the ones that don't count. Yeah. You know? Often you're working on two projects at once. And, and, and it's very collaborative, very collaborative. And you get really good at budgeting time because that's a really big part of it. And I think that's a, a professional skill that you have to learn. I'm going to talk about your indie feature film now. How did you land the project Sorrel and how did it affect your career? I met Sam Barrett, the director, uh, via the commercials that I'd been working with him on at Boogie Monster. So, I'd struck a really good relationship with him early on in Perth and uh, we were kind of his go-to for his commercials. And on the side, he was writing and feverishly trying to make this kind of big, ambitious, independent, neo-noir horror film. Cool. And uh, I caught wind of it in some discussions with him and I said to him, you know, it'd be mutually beneficial if he had someone he could rely on for visual effects and if I had the platform of a feature film to better my skills and, and really train in a whole bunch of areas to plus up my career. All right. And what was the software that you used? For ingestion and editing, it was Premiere. And for compositing, it was Nuke. For 3D, it was Maya and ZBrush. And for effects, it was Maya and RealFlow. How many shots were in the project? And what was the financial and time budgets? It wasn't a lot of shots. It might have been about 100. Uh, (laughs) That's a lot. Um, For one person? Yeah, for one person, it's a lot. As for budget, uh, it was a freebie. 
It was one of those passion projects of mine that I committed to outside of work at night times and weekends, but it went for two years of my life. Do you think it was worth it? Absolutely. I regret the time lost on the weekends, but the platform it gave me to explore much deeper things in visual effects and learn some of those hard aspects of your career like time budgeting, deadlines. In a personal project, it's very easy to just delay things. Oh, I'll keep going. Oh, I'll keep going. Yeah, well, did did you eventually get and finish the project on time? <laughs> we, I mean, we finished finished the project. Whether it was on time, I think it was supposed to take a year, not two years, but it <laughs> sure. was it was a passion project of of all of ours. But yeah, we finished it. Just a, a year over budget, then. A, I mean, yeah, a year <laughs> over <laughs> a year over budget. Oh, that's comical. And uh, on that project, you did a, a body double. So, how did you do that? The Digi Double was kind of my own insane idea that I could make one of the sequences more complex to suit me learning some more advanced techniques. Yep. So, I pitched to Sam that uh, instead of this scene, which would feature the protagonist and her twin sister, the, the villain, and, you know, in an independent film, you'd do cutaways and you'd get around the fact that you don't have two of the same actress, obviously. I said, well, why don't we just do it all in one take? We don't have motion control. Let's see what we could do. Because at that point, I, I really wanted to put myself in a place where you would be like in, in the movie industry. You get a problem put across your desk and you got to solve it. Of course, the problem was created by me. I didn't realize it would take me a year to do. But... <laughs> It was a digi-double. So, yeah. I, I had to create a digi-double of the main actress and put her into the same take as the actress herself. And the way I went about that was creating a laser scanner so that I could scan the actress into the computer, retopologize her, animate her performance, texture her, and then and render into the scene. Did you have a, a partner at the time? I did, and she's still with me today. <laughs> I don't know how she stuck by me all those years, but... Yeah, the DigiDouble laser scanner was made out of Lego and um, has this grown man on the weekends tinkering away with Lego. She was probably reassessing who she was partnered with. The laser scanner, that's a pretty cool thing to do. Is that to save money or are they just not on sale at that time? Back then, scanning was quite expensive, actually, and it it was certainly not commercially available in the way it is now where you can do it via your iPhone or or your iPad or, or, or photogrammetry techniques even. I mean, photogrammetry was around then, but I need much more fidelity than the photogrammetry uh, re- resolution that you could get back then. So, yeah, the best option was to do a laser scanner. Uh, I did a lot of research online and and the only reason why I went with Lego was because it was cheap and uh, it was controllable via the programmable Lego kit that you can buy at any toy store, would you believe? Oh, that's cool. I think, uh, yeah, my son would love that. Oh, I still have the scanner today just to remind me about where I started, would you believe? Yeah, well, yeah, when you win your Oscar, you can uh, put it next to it. Um <laughs> <laughs> So now I'm going to talk about Luna Pictures. What was the experience like moving from Perth to Melbourne to work at Luna Pictures? It was really daunting. I mean, 
going from a very, very small commercial outfit in Perth to a fully fledged studio, I was a bit awestruck and, you know, nervous. And it's, it's that whole thought, you know, am I going to be good enough? I've always been that person who thinks that I need to learn more. I need to be better. I need to do this. It was a, an amazing team that was assembled and uh, really amazing projects from, from the very first year. I mean, in my first year, I worked on Thor 2. That was amazing. Cool. All right. Oh, oh God, I'm spilling beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's comical. Fucking <laughs> hell. <laughs> All righty. Let's get back into it. How did you develop your career inside Luma? I started Luma as uh, a generalist, as we all did, and from the first batch of hires, I guess you could say in 2012, we we each branched out into a somewhat specialization. I became one of the um, first members of the effects department, but my background as a generalist, I was always interested in more than one thing. So I started in effects, but I quickly branched out from effects into lighting. So simulating it, then lighting it. And of course, the next step was, well, if I've simulated it and I've lit it and rendered it, what does it look like comped? And so ultimately, I started a more wide-ranging look dev role where I would do all three. Yeah. And by being across those multiple departments, um, it was a, a logical step to be considered for promotion because I was across many disciplines and able to help lead many disciplines in that regard. And that's what led to my promotion to lighting soup. And of course, again, that natural next step from lighting supervision is once you've seen it lit and rendered, how is it looking once it goes through comp? And that's what took me into sequence supervision where I'm across the lighting of CG and the the comping of all that through the pipe. And when did you start dealing with the client, like dealing with the studio? 2017. Yeah. After Doctor Strange, which is an incredible experience under Vince, the senior VFX supervisor, I was very lucky enough to be uh, attached to Ridley's Alien Covenant and representing Luma, both Melbourne and LA, for for our body of work on that show. And that was just a that's a dream come true. I mean, it's it's not quite Star Wars, but yeah. it was very much a universe that I loved growing up, and uh, couldn't believe I was a part of it. And did you meet Ridley Scott? No, I didn't meet Ridley Scott, Duh. but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. He did do a drawing that was sent to me <laughs> to be used as part of the inspiration for our work. So, I've got that drawing and you know, I'll never let go of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, you, you've got time. Like, he's, he's still making stuff. That's true. Like, that's uh, true. Yeah. That, what do you call it? It's uh, the TV show. Raised by Wolves is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the, the universes that uh, Ridley creates and I'd love to be part of another one. So, over the years, which projects do you think have been the most successful or satisfied you the most? Doctor Strange was a real highlight of my career, not just for my career, but also for what we achieved at Luma technologically. It was a very ambitious sequence and very challenging, but very rewarding. I think that's that's the that's the success at that end of the spectrum where um, it pushes every department, every artist, every technician to its absolute brink. Yeah. And 
the company or, or, or the, the people involved, you're kind of never the same once you've done that. You've broke through new barriers and you know that that can be done and, and you've got that as your benchmark. And it really pushed us into a, a different caliber after that. That's such an epic movie. Is there any smaller projects that you're proud of or? Yeah. Something like Jojo, Rad- Jojo Rabbit, which was uh, an independent small film, but of course done by the, the wonderful Taika. I had the opportunity, wonderful opportunity of being the sole VFX supervisor on that. And we were the only vendor on that show. So we were creatively partnered with Taika. And whilst it's not showy and superheroes and explosions, although there were explosions in it, (laughs) it was very rewarding because you strike up a a close collaboration. And I got to talk and meet regularly with Taika and, and I have really great memories of that. Cool. All right. Have you had any failures in your career and what did you learn from them? I have had failures in my career. I'm a perfectionist and I think one of the biggest learning curves of my career on a personal level has been to balance my pursuit of perfection with reality. And it's probably something that a lot of supervisors or aspiring artists have is knowing when to tools down or pens down. Certainly now I've got a much better handle on on knowing when to choose my battles, but I'm always driven for the best possible product. And how did you fail in that situation? At least at, at Luma and, and, and in the management team, we've always seen overtime as a failure because you, you're going past, you know, the clock and, you know, the hours that a lot of us in the industry know, all know about and talk about and... yeah. You, you forget about those hours pretty quickly once the project ends. You look at the, the awesome work and you celebrate it and you're proud of it. But, you know, going through it, you know, those are those, those, those mini, I guess, failures that you experience where, you know, you might have, might have made a, a bad decision or a bad call or pushed too hard or not, not um, predicted the curveball or come up with the right methodology. I mean, those are all the, the, the little microcosms yeah. of the project along the way. Um, sometimes overtime is not uh, in your control and it's just the nature of the beast. But um, those are the, the lessons that I've learned in, in trying to curb my, my pursuit for perfection and, and balancing against the reality and the, the team you have and, and what, what's in front of you. Cool. That was an honest and interesting answer. What was the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career? As you get into supervision and as, as you uh, lead others, it's very easy to fall back on your strengths as an artist before you were a supervisor. Oh, I know how to do that in asset. Oh, I know how to do that in lighting. And then you really get hands-on because you know how to do it yourself. And there's that 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 thought of, well, if I do it, it'll just it'll just get done quicker. Yeah. But of course, that's not leadership. That's not that's not mentoring, and it's not leading a team. So, I think it's 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 not letting go, but understanding that yeah, you have all these skills as 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 an artist that got you to that place, but now you're no longer doing it. You need to trust the individuals around you and help them get there, and not micromanage and not. Be so hands-on with every single part of the puzzle. And that's been my, my learning journey for sure. And is there someone to meet you, mentor you in that sort of pursuit and explain to you? Because you're sort of near the top of the tree. Yeah, uh, well, how do you learn those things? 
it's interesting. It, it's not just from the top down that you learn those things, but certainly our head of production has always been someone for me for sure to remind me that I can't be across every single thing. As he says, he, he calls it being in the weeds. Uh, I've always been someone who gets in the weeds too much. <laughs> yeah, that, that's so easy to do. How do you know when you're standing back uh, and you're not directing too heavily? You know, you, you can see it in the artists. You can see it in their, in their enjoyment of, the, of what they've been assigned and, and seeing how they break through barriers. The more you, you get to witness that, the more you realize that you've let them uh, be empowered with that opportunity and, and sometimes you even let them, you know, it's, it's not a sink or swim, but a sense of it's up to them to figure it out. Yeah. Because if you don't let them do it, they won't progress. Cool. So, tell us a little bit about the history of Luma. The company was founded in, in, in Los Angeles almost 20 years ago, actually. And the idea was to really create a harmonious relationship between the two. So, rather than treating it as two separate facilities, it was more like two buildings under the one umbrella, just in two different countries. And this is Melbourne and LA. Melbourne and LA. And one of the ways that we, we've tried to create that harmony was when we're in the office, we have these portals, if you will, TV screens with a live link to Los Angeles. And you can go up to that TV and just freely start talking to an artist, a supervisor, a production coordinator, manager, what, what have you. And furthermore, our CEO, Pyam, thought that if the environment felt similar, you feel more comfortable reaching out to someone that uh, you obviously can't see in, in, in person. So he actually shipped over the exact same furniture and desks to the Melbourne office. So when you look into these portals, yep. it's the same desk and chairs on the other side. And, and it's quite bizarre. I, I, I exchange once a year to LA. And when you look back, it really does look like you're just looking through a window. And it, it makes you feel more comfortable to talk to does this really work or is it just a gimmick no it definitely works yeah and and now you're online uh how is it going working online that's the interesting part about it is we've kind of done this in a way for eight years i've i've talked through you know various technologies before zoom was a big thing yeah well you know all throughout the day and what's your pipelines like on uh, both sides? Are they the same pipeline as well? Yeah, and that's part of that harmony that I was just saying. It's the same pipeline, same methodology, same, I guess, philosophy to how we, how we do the work. When we approach the work coming into the studio, uh, we actually split it as best we can faithfully 50-50 so that we're not playing favorites with either. Okay, cool. And, and what's your software, hardware, renderers? Do you use and do you have any in self-made stuff? So we've got Synthize and PF Track and 3D Equalizer for tracking, Maya for rigging, layout, animation, for modeling, hard surface, obviously Maya. We've got ZBrush for organic and sculpt. For texturing, it's a mixed bag of Photoshop, Mari, Substance, for rendering, we do our look dev and lighting in Katana with Arnold. Okay. For effects, we're in Houdini and rendering via a mixture of uh, Mantra and Arnold. And for comp, it's Nuke. And do you use software for managing the pipeline? 
our database is via F-Track. What do you like about it? Is it any good? F-Track's great because it's really customizable um, and they're really responsive to things that we want to do to customize it for our production management. And it's got some really great functionalities with how it extends to RV okay. so that you can review shots and annotate and give notes all at the same time quite seamlessly, which has actually been a really big plus in the work from home. What are the advantages and the disadvantages of being a generalist? The advantages is that you get a really good broad spectrum picture of the pipeline, which means you get an understanding of how things flow from one to the next, but you also get the big picture. You're not pigeonholed into just one task. You get to understand the weight of the animation. You get to understand the surfacing of the object. You get to understand the compositing of it into a live action plate. So you, you get a lot of knowledge and, and cross-pollination. What are the disadvantages? The disadvantages is that it, it's probably that classic um, jack-of-all-trades, king-of-none. You know, it, it's probably near impossible to say that you're excellent at every single discipline within visual effects. Impossible. That's not to say that that's a bad thing, but certainly when you branch out into film visual effects where there is a lot of specialization, um, they certainly need you to be extraordinary at one discipline. As a generalist, do you find that you work harder? You have to do more? You're under more pressure? That sort of stuff? Yeah, I think you definitely have to do more, but I actually think that you employ a lot more ingenuity because you, you know how to cut corners because you've got a vast knowledge of softwares. You're kind of forced to, to learn a lot more. And because of that, you can uh, make quicker decisions. Oh, I'm not going to do this in Maya. I'll do this in 2D because I think it'll be quicker in 2D. You know, you can make decisions like that because you actually know both. Yeah. I think another great aspect of being a generalist is that you can kind of make those decisions to suit your strengths. Oh, yeah, I'm good at Maya, so I'm going to I'm gonna do that in 3D and then uh, I'll know I'll do a much better job of it in 3D and then I'll see how it looks when it, once it goes into 2D. You, you've got those options because yeah. you, you know the entire pipeline. Okay. What was it like winning the AACTA Group Award for Spider-Man Far From Home? <laughs> what a, what a, you, you did win that, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, is it seen of in the industry as important or did you? what was the experience like? I was incredibly proud of, of winning the Actor Award for Spider-Man. We've participated in the Actor Awards Bake Off uh, for five years straight and it's it's a really great initiative supported by the visual effects society and i've presented every year since 2016 and to see the work submitted by the australian industry just increase every single year it's, it's a really humbling thing to be a part of that there's extraordinary work coming out of the studios and of course in these five years there's been more and more studios coming together and submitting what are the benefits of being part of it? It's also great for the industry to come together. There's not many platforms in Australia that do bring all the studios together and, and, and talk about the achievements that we're all making. 
Do you mind if we take a quick break now just to thank our sponsors? Yeah, no worries at all. Whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. Find out more at msi.com forward slash workstations. For 30 years, Digistore has provided solutions for the creation, management, storage and distribution of digital media. From animators and post-production facilities to broadcast operations, from single studios to collaborative networked environments, Digistore has you covered for all your hardware, software, support and training needs. I'd like you to pause now and go to mastersofmotion.com.au and check out the three breakdown reels. They're the projects we're about to talk about. It will improve your listening experience dramatically. All right, you ready to go? You're not yeah, sure. unhappy with the uh, Melbourne draft? No, mate. I'd like to know where I'm drinking it from. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you. Let's get into it. So now we want to talk about your award-winning VFX production of Spider-Man Far From Home. What were the big challenges in that project? The most obvious one would be the the 30, 40 foot molten lava creature, molten man. The fact that it was taking place in a scene that needed to be extended beyond the photography. So it involved a full CG environment, lots of battle, lots of effects, lots of effects. In fact, I think it was like 99% of the sequence that we did had at least 10 layers of effects, which was something we'd never done before. Okay. And with your large 10-foot high, it might have been 50-foot high lava man. Yeah, like 30 or 40 foot, yeah. Uh, Like how was the process of developing a monster made of lava? Has there been anything like this done before? And how did you go through the approval process? We certainly researched what had been done before. I mean, there was amazing stuff done on Wrath of Titans, for example, uh, even the character in another Marvel property um, in Thor Thor 3 Ragnarok. Yeah, we were very lucky to be on board with the, the production very early on. In fact, I had a, a good six six to eight months lead up time in, in concept and look, look development. Yeah. You quickly realize that it's a character that's changing every frame. It's not just a, a traditional character. It's, it's a dynamic character. His shape's changing. His surface is changing. And that's very tricky because it challenges your traditional character pipeline, you know, where you model something, you rig it, you do your UVs, you do your texture, and then when you render it, it comes out like that in every shot you put it in. But in our case, every frame, every shot, he looked different. He was simulated fully. Yeah. Um, and that, that actually presented um, interesting challenges because the flow of lava and the way the lava moved across his body actually sometimes competed with the the posing of him it would actually sometimes dilute or or muddy up the recognizability of him and that was a a challenge right from the start we had to figure out yeah and he's like a big fat sort of tall ogre made of like fire and lava so when he moves around did you have all the posing and the movement and the animation done like as a animatic or a 
you know, pre-visualization before you did this, the, all the Sims on top. As always, Marvel has a fantastic pre and post-vis um, process. We were really engaged with Marvel on, on Spider-Man to, to be involved as early as possible. So we actually did TechViz, uh, which is this process of um, taking uh, real measurements of uh, cameras, cranes, dollies, uh, all real measurements and data, and basically building a CG version of the camera kit and equipment that they would deploy on location. Yeah. And we built up front camera moves that would look like they're filming something 40 foot. Because of course, when they go to Prague, the cinematographer, he doesn't, he can't see a 40 foot character. So they wanted us to block in, in Maya, a 30, 40 foot character, build some camera moves off it and give Marvel the data so that when they go on set, they know the field of view, the distance away from the, the creature um, and the space limitations. If you think about a, a 30, 40 foot creature, if he walks for a few seconds, is he already going to cover the whole space of the Prague Square? Those were some of the, the kind of um, challenges that we had to, to think about. And with the actual character and the lava and the... So how did you go through the modeling process of creating that character? So you started off... Uh, with still frames, I would imagine. Started with still frame concepts, and then and then you and what software did you use as you went through the process? Yeah, we we, we quickly were in three D. I mean, our our um, character supervisor Matthew, you know, he's he's great at conceptualizing in three D. So rather than just purely two D, he's already in sculpting, and that's that's really the forte of of, of all the best kind of concept artists so you zbrush sculpt it zbrush yep and then after that what was the process of creating like because it was a fluid monster what was the process then of creating all those fluids yeah so we still had the traditional character underneath so a bipedal rigged character uh, and that's obviously so the animation team can do the performance um, but as, as you're saying it's a simulated character so we had to develop a sense of flow that was the first thing we knew. Yep. And because for that reason I mentioned earlier where the, the lava dripping constantly often destroyed the sense of readability of the character. You know, if, if you imagine a almost like a face made of wax and you melted it, all the features just melt away. But of course, this is a Marvel movie. You can't have the features melt away. You want to be able to read a classic superhero villain, yep. right? So we had to art direct the flow around features so that you maintained a readability. And so it quickly became a thing of like, well, if we're art directing the flow, is it opposing gravity? Is it is it moving downwards? Is it moving around? Is it swirling? Like, what is it doing? And so there's a whole exercise of studying magma flow on, on the, you know, the, the edges of mountains and understanding how that moves and, and using that as, as reference. Could you tell us a little bit about the process of winning this character work? I supervised a pitch to win the work and that was our own internal, I guess, proposal of what the character could look like. And that really grabbed John Watts' eye on set when he, when he saw it. Yeah. At that time, we had, we had pitched a very kind of uh, liquid metal version of the character because th this version of Molten Man, he's not just purely lava, but he's an aggregate of met metallic surfaces that he's melted from um, the sculptures and statues that are in the Prague Square. 
as far as how fast we could iterate, something that was quite innovative for the development of this character was our automation. We, we knew that a character like this in a sequence that's heavily developed in post-production with a lot of full CG shots, ideas are going to evolve as they always do in post-production. Yeah. We needed to know that we had a character that we could change quickly in its performance and not necessarily be bridled by how long the simulation would take. Because if we developed a character that would take, let's say, a week to see a result, and that's just one shot, yep. and then you want to evolve the story and play with ideas and explore, you're just never going to finish it. Could you tell us about the methods you employed to improve your pipeline to make this character feasible? Absolutely. What we developed was a, was quite, quite innovative stuff. It was... Uh, a nodal network, much like what you see in Nuke, but these tokens, which are almost like nodes that you'd see in, in Nuke or Houdini, for example, represented actions. And so if you imagine an action would be export the animation out of Maya, the next action would be bring the animation cache into Houdini. Then the next action would be generate fire. Once the fire has been simulated on the farm, the next action would be bring the fire back into Houdini and generate smoke off the fire. That would go to the farm, come back, and then the next action would be, okay, let's spawn embers from the fire and then simulate the embers through the smoke. Cool. And basically through this series of, of nodes, uh, we basically described an automation of what Multiman should look like. And then over about, let's say, three months, we kind of trained this automation yep. through a series of actions so that we knew Molten Man would look pretty consistent if he's walking, if he's standing still, or if he's punching. We basically tested the character through these series of scenarios that we knew were in the sequence and made sure that this automation generated something that was pretty, pretty similar. And, and do you think this was the like, most complex character you've worked on? Yeah, absolutely. Was there any other technical advances that you sort of made in that sequence? We developed a lot of uh, QC practices where we're automating the comps of certain departments so that you know what the result looks like, not just as a render, but in context against a plate. Could you expand on that? So, for example, that automation, we extended it so that it was as automated as the production manager clicking a button in F-Track once an animation was ready and two days later, a QuickTime was published to me and that QuickTime has Molten Man animating, simulating in a plate and no artist was involved between the animation being exported and the production manager clicking that button. Cool. And yeah, did it often come out incorrect? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nothing's ever that easy. But what was great about it was as we're exploring changes to the story or evolving the, the action, that's, you can call it throwaway work, but that's work that didn't have to be done by an artist. Yeah. So let's say, oh, instead of, instead of uh, Spider-Man coming from right to left, let's have him come from left to right and then Multiman turns around his other way as a result. That's two days worth of work that the computers did. Yeah whilst the effects team in parallel worked on the templates of the realism of the simulation properties. 
So that's really like pipeline allowing more creative work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, animation uh, pipeline development. Exactly. Yeah. Animation's focusing on the performance, effects is focusing on the the realism or the or the the interesting qualities of the simulation. But in the exploration of the storytelling, we're using the computer to leverage that. Was there any other interesting things like the city around it or Yeah, so the Prague Square itself had to be full CG in every angle, 360 degrees. Um, again, for that ex- exploration of storytelling, because we're talking about a CG Spider-Man, obviously jumping around, flying through the air, a CG Mysterio who's levitating and committing smoke everywhere, yep. and then a 40-foot Molten Man. So if you've got this many CG characters, of course, your camera quickly becomes CG. And so our environment had to hold up in every angle. Did you go out and scout the square and measure the buildings, etc.? We were really lucky that we had a drone shoot uh, in Prague and the drone flew at various heights and various distances to the environment and captured every square inch of that. And we just went through a very intensive photogrammetry process to rebuild. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Doctor Strange uh, sequence. It was an epic sequence of the folding building, so it was epic. Could you describe to me the battle sequence that we're talking about? It was the opening London sequence of Doctor Strange and uh, we come across a being who is able to conjure a mirror dimension and via the mirror dimension, the buildings literally start to kaleidoscope and mirror and flip and rotate. Uh, And it was very ambitious for us at the time. It pushed our use of Maya to its absolute limit. We're now in Katana as a result of Doctor Strange. Yeah. Got a battle seeks going over the top of that, yeah. with, uh, and then uh, a whole lot of simulations as well. How do you approach such a big scene, and what are the methods that you use to make it efficient and to get it delivered on budget? Uh, because something like that could easily spiral out of control. One of the strengths of us at Luma, and this is mainly because we're small, we've had to learn how to be fast and quick decision makers. It's not a massive studio. You know, we're not 400, 500 people strong. So one of our things is failing fast. Very interesting. Yep. Putting pixels on the screen quickly and then being like, oh, no, that's not, that's not going to work. Rather than the other, which is a very long drawn out development process uh, that takes months and months and months. We're very quick at rapid prototyping. That's one of our skills. Yep. Um, and that's really leveraging the animation department who uh, do a lot of legwork in not just animation, but putting in sprites and effects and first pass dynamics and more technical animation even. Yeah, and that's back and forth with the director and VFX supervisor. Yeah, so you're really visualizing and, and like I said, rapid prototyping in animation, um, what it could be, doing it quickly getting an understanding of, is this even in the ballpark? No? Okay, great. Well, we didn't spend too much time on that effort. Let's now do this one. And, and those effects seem very artistic. Was it harder to do artistic shots than, you know, explosions that everyone sort of understands? Absolutely, because fractals were an unknown for us and we actually had to create technology to allow the animation team to see the fractals inside Maya because... You know, they're, they're by design, by virtue, they're procedural geometries that 
like you know wonderful to look at but they're not really they're not really organized or structured in a way that you want them to be it's kind of like you it's a mathematical equation yep and wherever you look at in this 3d visualization of the equation it is just what it looks like you can't change that so you need to refilm a different area so it was a lot about giving animations some control so they could bend it to to suit their needs wanted to ask you a question about Black Panther as well. The Black Panther suit is black. <laughs> yes. And he's at night time. Yes. So how did you how did you give it like how did you make that work in lighting and give it the make it look interesting and make it stand out from the night? That's a really good question. I think a big part of the execution of, of Black Panther within Busan is that you need to really get all the lights on set extracted and then put into the scene. So every lamp post, every neon light, every every car headlight, because all those lights are little sources of reflection that will get picked up in his suit. Okay. And so we spent a lot of time really spending time with extracting all those lights onto real cards, geometry, right distances, right scales. I mean, you essentially, you're rebuilding the streets of Busan just so you can have an accurate representation of all the different lights in the scene so that when Black Panther travels through it on top of a car, you know that he's going to get all those lights dancing across him. Yeah. That was actually the main focus, his specular, how he responds to the lights. The energy that ran through his seat, how did you approach doing that? And like what, what software were you using through this process and... Yeah, we, we were really fortunate to be involved with the, the design of that pretty early. Uh, and we kind of explored it like hieroglyphics in a way. There's this beautiful ornate detailing in his suit. Um, so we baked all that suit detail down into uh, UV space. And then in Houdini did particle simulations that ran through that. Once we ran it through those UV patches, we then um, put that back onto the suit and it was a particle render that was fed into Nuke to drive AOVs that came from the suit. So it's a kind of a combination of some custom AOVs from the asset department and particle simulations from Houdini to generate that fluorescent, uh, really articulated you know, network of glows, uh, almost like fireworks rippling through his suit. Yeah, and, and was that added in because they wanted to make him stand out more in the night scenes? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure if it was specific to that. It certainly helped our cause that he's generally under some sort of constant gunfire and and those patterns of fluorescent purple revealing across his suit help the viewer, you know, persistently see him. But no, I think it was more uh, about it being, uh, you know, a a factor of the technology in his suit relative to Wakanda. And do you feel like you're learning uh, each time you do a new suit? Like you've done Spider-Man. <laughs> do you feel Every- like there's things that you learn oh, or yeah. they're different? Uh, yeah. I mean, even having done two Spider-Mans, I will say that it's never the same challenge. It just goes to show you that the, the, the production design of these suits is just getting more and more interesting. But each time there's new challenges. But you definitely learn things along the way. Certainly from Spider-Man 1 to Spider-Man 2, you're like, oh, I remember, we remember how... You know, the the ornate detailing of, of the red fabric reacted to the sun in a certain way. And then you apply that to the second time. But it's great because you get to start from that and then better it. And you take that onto each show. But 
the challenges are new each time. Cool. Alrighty. So I'm now going to talk about you as a supervisor and give tips to other people who are supervising. How did you develop your supervising skills and what were the important steps you had to learn along the way? Wow. Well, I honestly think a big help was that I did a lot of tutoring back at university. Uh, Once I graduated, I'd been using Flash for a long time and I did two years of mentoring and tutoring in Flash. And I think that put me in a space of understanding public speaking and, you know, guiding artists and or at that time students, helping them overcome challenges. And I think that was a really good footing for me to become an effective communicator in the first place. So you'd recommend teaching then as a a side thing? I I think supervising and teaching kind of go in hand. Not always. Sometimes you just got to get the job done. Um, But yeah, I think there's a level of teaching involved in in supervising. What attributes does a good supervisor have? Not have an ego, that's for sure. You know, you've got to understand that it's a team effort and that generally everyone is trying. And if they're not getting it, it's a couple of things. Either they need support to get there or you haven't communicated the brief correctly or it was uh, a misalignment of tasking them in the first place. In other words, maybe it was not a right fit. Sometimes, uh, you know, supervising is just about casting, you know, understanding who you've got in front of you and the task you've got and making sure it's the right call. Sometimes you get that wrong. And what about listening? Uh, how important do you think listening is as a supervisor? Yeah, really important. Really important. And why? Because many times artists have got a better idea than, than you do. And that's one of the joys of being a supervisor is you get proven wrong or um, give you something that you didn't ask for. I actually enjoy that really personally a lot. When someone gives me something I didn't ask for and uh, I was wrong, I love that. Is that a high-risk strategy for them? I don't think every artist employs that strategy, um, but I definitely welcome that. I mean, you know, we always say, you know, show me an alt. Okay. If, if you can sense that they they really believe in something else, you're like, yeah, okay, let's do this. This is what the clients ask for, but yeah, show me show me your other idea. Let's have a look. Maybe, maybe that's the way to go. You've got to be briefed and then you've got to rebrief. So I want to talk about briefing. How's the listening process in briefing as a supervisor? As, like you're the supervisor, you're the middleman between the person who's got the vision and the people who implement it. Yep. So how does the listening and work in that? You need to listen into and pick up on how they've understood the brief, right? So it's always important that the artist recaps the brief, regurgitates the brief, you know, as, as, as crude as that is. And you've got to listen in to see if they've hooked into the idea. Yep. You know, a lot of the time we're doing abstract, creative, sometimes even ambiguous, you know, journeys of, of exploration. And um, you need to see if they've really picked up on it and listen into them and let them speak back to you. What are the important things when you actually write things down? With anything that's highly creative, you've got to talk, not write. I mean, the, the, the documentation of it is very important for... Uh, you know, going into your database, whether it's shotgun or F-track. Written notes are a part of every day. That's how you get notes from the client. That's how you take notes down. But 
you got to communicate in person. I think that's always the best way. Um, often because of these jazz hands, you, you're using your hands to be expressive. And, you know, if yeah. it's a performance-based thing, you are going to move around and express. But I, I can see those big jazz hands. Yeah, I'm doing all sorts <laughs> of jazz hands for Matt right now. Um, but yeah, written notes should always cover like who, what, when. What's the important things you need to think about when you're reviewing or doing a critique? Always reviewing with an understanding of what the most important thing is for the brief or, or for the client. So you could have 10 notes. If you give all 10 notes, and this is something that I've learned, Matt, honestly, yeah. along, along the way, it's like it, it's no use giving 10 notes because you know you don't really need all 10 notes all at the same time. If, if you've got number one, just hit that or let's yeah. say top three. I, and that's that's what I've learned along the way is try focus on the things that leave the biggest impression are going to be the most important to client. Hit those first, make it clear, concise, and then you can move on to the second wave if you need to. And if you're an artist, right, if you're on the floor, and what should they be listening for, find out from you? What are the key things? I think this is an interesting one, but understanding what's a client note versus an internal note. You know, we, we as supervisors and leads and managers, we're always going to have our notes to get the product to a certain level to present to the client. But there's always going to be client notes that have been documented. And as an artist, you should have always tried to cover those first. And it's it's good to know. And I'm not saying that you know, my notes aren't important, but I know that the client notes are more important. Yeah. And when the artist is taking their, your feedback, do you think they should write down the notes? Always. And you would not believe how many people even experienced, even senior, don't do that. And when they do write it down, do, do you ever get caught as a supervisor of them remembering it better than you because they've written it down? Oh, and- I would love that. <laughs> I, I it, it seems really simple and really mundane, write down notes. I know. And as a creative director, I loved it when I saw people writing down the yeah. notes. Because I'm like, and, and often I would come back two weeks later and they would show me the notes and I would think I'd said something different. Yeah. But I hadn't. Do you know what yeah, I'm no, saying? And, and everyone perceives things differently. Yeah. You know, never just rely on production coordination to take notes because, you know, they're going to hear the words literally you might write the notes in the way that you understand better than no one else. Cool. What technologies, plugins, applications are you excited about at the moment? I've got to say Unreal. Unreal is just, I mean, it's Unreal. <laughs> it's just amazing. Like we've, we've, we've started it. Uh, I recently had a, a demo done for an environment that we're currently uh, building in CG and the, the speed, the sheer speed at which it could come together and the just the accessibility and how, how fast you can put something together and visualize it in a meaningful way. It's not just a layout of assets. It's a layout of assets rendered. You can move the camera. You can do it and it's rendering as you see it. I mean, it's just amazing. And 
Are you using that in the production pipeline much at the moment? Yes, we we actually have we've just ex- executed a sequence in Unreal, so renders from Unreal going straight to Comp, uh, and that's for a show that's underway at the moment. And what software do you feel the most comfortable in? I'd probably say Nuke, followed by Maya. And why do you think that that software is enjoyable to use? I think for me, Nuke uh, represents the culmination of of LookDev. You know, it, it, you're bringing in geometry, you're bringing in renders, you're bringing in photography. Like I just love that 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 idea of of being at that the finishing. Yeah, stage. yeah, the, the precipice of it all coming together. I've always been that that way. You know, even when I was doing effect simulations and lighting, and not compositing at Luma, I still was bringing it into Nuke doing my own slap comps and seeing how it integrated. And I, I just love that ability to bring it all together. And often it's that last 10% that is the hardest. Oh, for sure. It's like, you know, it takes the, as long as the other 90% took. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's all in that compositing nuke area. When it comes to virtual production, how do you see virtual production changing the industry? It's already underway. And I think the changes are going to be felt, you know, sooner than we think. We've got internal content underway, already having gone through production and, and starting to transition into post. And, you know, virtual production is, is a big topic of discussion and there's shows that have already been shot with it. I think the change it's going to leave is that we're probably going to see studios, Luma, everyone else adopting new technology to ingest yeah. things that have been made by a third party in virtual production. You know, instead of like just seeing a post-vis or a previs, and then, you know, rebuilding that, I think we're going to start having a, a real blending and, and almost a, a blurring of the lines of, of when production stops and post-production starts. And do you see the day where visual effects studios are fully integrated into production? Yeah, I mean, that's surely where it's going. I mean, yeah. at least at least the thought that we're going to be integrated a lot earlier, more consistently. Yeah. And and do you think there's going to be more jobs or less jobs? You, oh, I see you want to get it that beer. You can have a sip. <laughs> there are not enough artists in the industry to support the amount of content being made. Well, good artists. Yeah, yeah. Artists with the skills. Yeah. Because there's a lot of artists out there who are struggling to get industry but don't have the ability or the education to, yes. to do it. Yeah. I. I Hiring has never been more pressing. Yeah. It, it, there's so much content being done. So many streaming services. Well, I'll just say, just last month on my jobs page, I had 37 jobs. Like, and that's a percentage yeah. of all the other jobs yeah. that are out there. So, yeah, like, and, and yeah, there's a lot of hiring going on at the moment. Which yeah. Is pretty cool. And then balance, you have a wife and kids, I imagine. I do. Two kids. One's five months old and I barely sleep. <laughs> and how do you avoid burnout in this challenging industry? I can't say that I do it well because I'm such a perfectionist, but lifestyle balance is really important, obviously. I think one of the things is is knowing when to finish, when to stop. You know, one of our our things at, at Luma is that, you know, if, you, if you're not owing a task uh, to client, don't have something that's going past five for, for really valid reasons. You're finishing at five. 
Yeah. You know, we're big on that. You know, yes, we do overtime, but if your task is done in a reasonable amount of time or it's not, uh, you know, due and, and you don't need to work past five, you, you absolutely should log out at five. I think visual effects is full of a lot of people, myself included, who love to just keep going, keep noodling, keep tinkering. It's kind of part of it, right? We, we love to keep exploring and oh, the what ifs. And it's those what ifs that just make you stay that one hour extra. And I think that's really hard. It's it's almost habitual. Um, it's a learned thing over over all the years in the career. And yeah, you see people do it all the time, hanging back. Yeah, yeah I just want to figure out this one thing. And it's like, but that one thing probably took them three hours. Yeah, and I can safely say that the reason why I'm not working full time now is because I, I just literally burnt out. Yeah. I got sick of doing 60 hour weeks every week. Uh, and once your family grows up, it's like this this curve of where you've got to invest more time in your family, and then the, you get this conflict. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing, which sort of leads me to the other thought that I have, which is: um, is there many artists over the age of forty working in production on the floor at Luma? Definitely not many. Could be one of two things: one, the industry really started in nineteen ninety five. So therefore, you would be about fifty now, or it's it's very hard to have a career and do the hours required and work intensely and keep it going. Oh, know, for sure. To India forties. Yeah, I I don't think you can avoid that reality. I I've only got a four year old and a and a five month old, so I. I mean, I could, you know, crystal ball and look into the future and extrapolate, you know, what what the intensity is like now, and I could see it being a very very challenging balance. I already I already find it challenging. Problem is, is like me and other people, it's your passion yes. and it's your enjoyment. You love it, and yeah. it, it, you're doing it because you love it. Absolutely, and that's, yeah. But you love your children too, and that's yeah. where for me the big crush was. It was like I can either do one or the other, and I think I I chose the. I couldn't do both, so I chose the children. It's not that I couldn't do both. It's that I didn't want to do both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last of all, if you could go back in time and start your career again, <laughs> what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, wow. This is going to be really rich of me to say it, but it's like don't sweat the small stuff, but it's like I still sweat the small stuff. <laughs> Obsessing over small details that don't matter at all, you know, these shots, they, they go by so quickly in the movies. You know, it's like a one second blip in an eye, blink of an eye and it's gone. And yeah, it's like what what's the value of, of the mental anguish of, of obsessing over those little details? But that's just my that's just my personality. I've, I've always been like that, you know, I'm a little OCD like that. But um, So you give yourself that advice, but you know you wouldn't do it. Is that what you're saying? I'd probably, I'd probably tell my, you know, my future self to get nicked. <laughs> it, it, this is, this is more of a outside of VFX thing. I would have recommended that I stay engaged in physical sport and activity. Yeah, you know, soccer or tennis or something that just keeps you engaged in the real world with social activity and physical activity. Going to keep you accountable to something outside of VFX just to give you some balance. I concur on that. I would tell myself that, but I probably would also tell myself, quit the job when you feel like you're not enjoying it anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I would tell myself. Right. Uh, because, yeah, I often did things too long before moving on to something else. 
Yeah, look, on, on that topic, the industry's never been better. Yeah. And look, you could probably say, Matt, that in Australia, like seven years ago, there was probably a real fear of longevity and you probably felt, and I don't say you, I mean, just as an individual in this, in this country that there wasn't longevity and you, you did have to hang around and, and um, push through the pain, but there is so much opportunity now. So much. The industry, like I said, I think there's, there's way more content than there is people to do the jobs. Cool. Alrighty. And what would you like to work on in the future? Hmm. I, I probably should do a Star Wars movie. I mean, really, I should, shouldn't I? I you're I, agreeing to moving to other places and now you're telling me you want to do Star no, Wars. No, I know, I know. Like, I, I should probably... Like, <laughs> what are they going to say at Luma? Like, you know, the five, six-year-old version of myself would be would just be shocked that I've managed to get into movie making and have not touched a Star Wars film. What about a Spielberg film? Oh, absolutely. I mean, any any film of the 80s, yeah. any any film of that, of that style, uh, I would love to do something like that. I'm sure it'll happen. Absolutely. All righty. I think that's a great place to finish up. No worries. Thanks once again for coming in, Brendan, and sharing your knowledge with us. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for the opportunity, Matt. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, it's, it's much more fun with alcohol, I have to say. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. You can find out more about Brendan Seals at IMDB or LinkedIn. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.